First Peter 5, the end of verse 5 all the way through 14 is our text for this morning. And this is God's holy word. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we do ask you, just as we sang this morning, please, Lord, show us Christ. Show us you. Show us your glory. Show us what you want us to change and how you want us to think and feel and live differently because of your word. And build into us uh, lives that honor you, that please you. God, build your church for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Lovers of reading fiction, by the way, are, are any of you people who love reading fiction? Yes. A couple of you? Okay. You guys will get this. Lovers of reading fiction will sometimes experience a peculiar sadness. I know I do. It's a sadness that is oddly connected to and paralleled to the joy that you find when you're really engrossed in a really good book or series. A reader who loves the story, if you love a good story, you will revel in picturing the scenes and knowing the characters and watching that plot unfold. But the sadness comes, and fiction readers, you'll agree with me, I think, it comes at the end. I don't think I've ever finished a good book, especially not a good series, without feeling a touch of grief at the end. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think to myself, I'm going to miss the characters. I know that I'm going to miss the voice of the author. And there is a sadness in knowing that I will never read that series again for the first time. If it's a good series, I will read it again. But it's never, it's just, it, it's not the same. It's not the same. And I feel a little bit like that, a little bit of that feeling as we come to the end of the book of 1 Peter here this morning. 
In this short letter, we have read, have we not, one of the most timely books that you could ever find in the New Testament for our day. Doesn't this just feel like what we're looking at in the world that we're in? Peter's highlighted for us the sovereignty of God, the glory of salvation, the approach of persecution, the need for us to obey, the life of living in a submissive relationship to our authorities, the necessity of the church, the hope that we have in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've learned how to live life in a hard world, living with hope even in the face of suffering. This has been a good book. And this morning, we have the final verses, the last verses of Peter's first epistle. And in it, we will find five points that tie the threads of this book all together. You know what? Every one of these five points is going to feel familiar to you, and they're all necessary for our lives today. They are perfectly in keeping with the flow and the teaching of what the book has taught us. And we would do well to enjoy these points this one last time before we return next week, next week, going back to the gospel according to Matthew. So if you want to look at that, it'll be Matthew chapter 22, Lord willing, okay? Now, let's get started here. Point number one for this morning as we get ready to wrap up this book. Be humble. Be humble. That's an easy one to write down. Would you agree it's easier to write down than to do? Be humble. Look at the verses we began with here. Verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that, he, that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, the idea of being humble, that completely is in keeping with what Peter has taught us in this letter. He called us to submit to authorities who are over us, and man, does it require humility to submit to your authorities, right? And, and Peter has reminded us that you and I, we are exiles in this world. We are likely to suffer for our faith, and that's going to require humility in us. But the wording is a little interesting. He tells you to clothe yourself with humility. And that word for clothing yourself literally means to tie it onto yourself. It, the picture would be like a slave putting on a, a white apron to identify himself as a servant instead of a free man. In our case, it's humility that is supposed to cover our lives and identify us to the world as something different. So what is humility? To be humble is to have a proper opinion of yourself. To be humble is to not think too highly of yourself or your abilities. Humility means that you do not put yourself forward, but you voluntarily see yourself as lower. Peter tells us God opposes the proud. Pride, of course, is the opposite of humility. A prideful person sees himself as better than others. Better, in fact, than he really is. A prideful person sees herself as more important than others, always deserving to have things her way. A prideful person forgets how great a sinner he is and how great is the grace of Christ that was required for our salvation. 
A proud person hates suffering, thinking, I deserve better. And ultimately, hear this, don't lose this, a proud person opposes God. In speaking of pride, Peter in this passage, in James in chapter 4, verse 6, quote the Greek version of Psalm 334, when they say God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This was clearly a pretty common teaching phrase in the early church. You exalt yourself, God will humble you. You humble yourself, the Lord will lift you up. By the way, which would you rather have God do for you? Lift you up or humble you? Yeah. Hear these words from Paul. Just think about this for a minute. Thinking about humility in Philippians 2, 3 through 11. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What does it look like to be humble? Think of other people as more important than you are. Focus on the needs and the desires of others before yourself. What's that look like? It looks like Jesus. Jesus is God, eternally God. Yet, what did the Lord Jesus do? Out of Love out of the plan of God. Jesus let go the honor due him in order to take the infinite step down out of heaven and into humanity. Jesus took on flesh. Jesus became a real man. Jesus even humbled himself further by choosing to willingly die on a Roman cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Jesus put our needs and our salvation ahead of his right to be worshipped as God for 33 years on earth. Can you imagine that? And what was the response of God the Father to Jesus' humility? God exalted Jesus. When Jesus lowered himself to the lowest possible place, his Father lifted him up to the highest possible place. 
And now, friends, in all of eternal history, there will never be a knee that does not bow to Jesus. And there will never be a tongue that does not declare Jesus Lord. Because Jesus will be perfectly, rightly worshipped by every human being who has ever lived, even those who reject him. On their way to hell, they will bow the knee and declare Jesus Lord. Jesus himself told us, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted in Luke 14, 11. That was in the context of Jesus telling people, hey, stop sitting in the best seat, the most important seat at banquets. Take a low seat because it, you would rather have somebody move you up than move you down. Jesus said, you put yourself forward, the Lord will need to smack you down. Humble yourself, live with godly humility, and the Lord will exalt you. Be humble. That's point one. Point number two. Rest in the care of Christ. Rest in the care of Christ. Verse 7 says, Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. This is simply beautiful, isn't it? Peter tells us we are to cast our anxieties, our cares upon the Lord. The word for casting is a throwing word. It's the same word that was used when the disciples threw their cloaks over the back of the donkey when Jesus was riding him into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. You remember that? We take our cares, we take our worries, we take our anxieties, and we throw them upon the Savior. Now, why would we do that? Peter says we're supposed to cast our anxieties on Jesus because Jesus cares for us. Okay, stop. I need you to clear your mind of all the stuff you think you know, and I need you to hear that again. Jesus cares for you. You're a sinner. You're a rebel against the Lord. You know at some level how wrong you have behaved in your life, right? You know how vile some of your thoughts have been, right? You know those things, those things you wish you'd never said, never done, never seen. You know those places you wish you had never gone, right? You know you've fallen short of the glory of God and sometimes you've done it on purpose. But if you're a Christian, the Lord Jesus says, I care for you. Do you get how beautiful that is? Let me give us one encouragement and one convicting thought from this. 
On the encouraging side of the ledger, think of how wonderful the thought is. How wonderful that thought would have been for Christians facing persecution. People might oppose you. Peter says they're going to malign you in chapter 4. The world may try to destroy you, but Jesus cares. We can stay humble. We can throw our fears. We can throw our anxieties on Jesus' shoulders. He's not oblivious to us. Jesus doesn't look at us and tell us, hey, just suck it up and live with the pain. No, no, no. He cares. You find that encouraging? Okay. Now, let me tell us something else. Something convicting in the context of this passage. What was the call for us to do in verse 6? We are to be humble, right? You with me there? That's, that's the command. Well, if you look at the way verse 7 begins, it is, in grammar, a participial phrase, casting all your cares. The grammar would tell us that casting your cares, your anxieties on the Lord, that is a descriptive phrase telling us how to put on humility. Casting your anxieties, your fears, your, your cares on Jesus, that is the way you show that you are humble. What's the opposite of humility? Pride. To not cast your cares upon Jesus then is to not do the thing Peter tells us is humble. To hold on to your anxiety is pride. Thomas Schreiner says it this way, quote, Seeing the relationship between the main verb, humble yourselves, verse 6, and the participle, casting all your anxiety upon him is important because it shows that giving into worry is an example of pride. The logical relationship between the two, the two clauses is as follows. Believers humble themselves by casting their worries on God. Conversely, if believers continue to worry, then they are caving into pride. How can anxiety and worry be criticized as pride? We can see that it might be a lack of faith, but does it make sense to identify worry as pride? Worry is a form of pride because when believers are filled with anxiety, they are convinced that they must solve all the problems in their lives in their own strength. The only God they trust in is themselves. When believers throw their worries upon God, they express their trust in His mighty hand, acknowledging that He is Lord and sovereign over all of life. As Goppelt says, affliction either drives one into the arms of God or severs one from God. End quote. I want to ask you to take this very seriously. Many people in the church live with worry and anxiety as part of their regular day-to-day -day lives. 
They might smile at you and say, Oh, I know, worry's a sin. How many, how many of you am I describing right now, by the way? I know, I know. But they think of that sin as if it were acceptable. A little badge of honor. Oh, you know me, I'm just a worrier. Hear me. If to be humble is to cast your cares upon Jesus, if to worry is pride, then worry is a far bigger sin than we should shrug at. Worry is a sin to be put to death because pride is a sin that makes God oppose us. Do you want the Lord opposing you? He opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Worry, listen to me, is not something that happens to you. Worry is something you do. It is something you choose to hold on to instead of casting it upon the Savior. And our comfort here is the reminder that we cast these cares upon Jesus. Why do you do that? Because He cares for you. He cares. Jesus is not here trying to make you worry more about being a worrier because now you find out that worry is a sin. Jesus wants to drive your mind to the fact that he cares. Jesus is strong. Jesus has suffered greatly. Jesus understands he is coming back. Heaven is our home. So take your worries and entrust them to the Savior. Be humble enough to throw, to cast your burdens toward Jesus. And trust me, I know this is going to require you to repent again and again and again. And that's okay. Be humble and repent over and over and over again as you remember that Jesus cares over and over and over again. You make a willing decision every day that you're going to magnify Jesus by facing hardships, facing suffering, facing persecution, Facing loss with courage. And the only way you can magnify Jesus in that is if you refuse to rely on yourself and you choose to cast your anxieties upon Jesus. So friends, that's why point two is rest in the care of Christ. Amen? How many think that's enough? We could just go home now, that's enough. Third point, resist the devil with firm faith. Resist the devil with firm faith. Verses 8 and 9 say, um, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, Oof. seeking a uh, Sorry about that. Like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So again, we hear a very familiar theme 
I mean, th th this sounds like, we've seen Peter write about this in multiple chapters. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Be alert. Don't be fogged in your brain like a drunk person is fogged by alcohol. Keep your eyes open so you can stand in a very difficult, very hard world. Why be alert, Peter? Because we've got an enemy who wants us to be destroyed. Peter, Peter's not ashamed to remind us here that the devil wants you and me dead. And by the way, who would know that better than Peter? Remember the scene at the Last Supper? Jesus looks down the table to Peter and says, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you. Jesus told Peter, you're going to fall. You're going to fail. You're going to deny that you even know me three times tonight. But when you have repented, when you are restored, Peter, help your brothers. Strengthen these other disciples. You know what happened to Peter after that, don't you? Because Peter said, not me. I would never, I would never do that to you, Jesus. And then standing in front of a little servant girl who said, were you with him? Peter said, not me. I would never hang out with a guy like that. As I heard a guy refer to Peter once as, you know, flash the sword, deny the Lord, Peter. <laughs> Peter was tempted that night, and Peter failed. Peter, it crushed him. Can you imagine the horror of looking at yourself and realizing you had just said, May a curse be on me if I know someone like him. I would never associate with Jesus. And then knowing you tried to do that to save your rotten skin. Peter wept bitterly, but then Peter was forgiven by the Savior. And he was restored in his repentance. And Peter was commanded by Jesus, go feed my sheep, Peter. But don't you think, dear friends, that at, after that point, Peter never once discounted the idea of the existence or the evil of the devil? From the very beginning, the Bible has been absolutely clear to us that you and I live in a physical world, but there is a spiritual world around us. Angels and demons are very real beings with real agendas that can really affect you and me. Angels are messengers, servants from God, sent by God to help us and to accomplish God's will. Demons, the devil among them, are fallen, broken, sinful angels who are bent on our destruction. Well, the Bible says the devil roars like a lion. He wants you and me to be afraid. He wants us to be afraid of him. He wants us to fall. He wants us to see the hardships that are coming our way because the world's not going to like us and he wants us to tremble. He wants us to turn away from the Lord. He wants you to disavow your faith. He wants you to choose the easier way. You know what the devil wants from you? He wants you to go back to living the, well, the life you used to live. He wants you to say, this is too hard. I've got to sacrifice too much to follow Jesus. I'm out. 
That's what the devil wants from you, and that's why he roars at you like a lion. What do we do? Resist him. Peter sounds like James again, doesn't he? Resist the devil and he will flee from you, James 4, verse 7. How do you do that? How do we resist the devil? Well, I think we know, we've seen the people on TV that tell us that we have to learn all the secret tricks of spiritual warfare to do this, don't we? Right? You got to know the code words. You got to know the incantations. You, you've got to know the ceremonies. You've got to know the exorcism tricks. I need an old priest and a young priest is what the movie said, right? Is that what we have to do? No. If I told you, turn to the Bible to a passage on spiritual warfare, where would you turn? Ephesians 6? Do you remember what Paul says the tools of spiritual warfare are in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18? You know what they are? Listen to this. Here is how we stand. Here's how we do war. Here's how we stand firm and resist. Listen. Truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, scripture, Holy Spirit, and prayer. You know what's funny about that list? Ain't one of those things mystical or magical. You notice that? What word would you use to describe that other than ordinary? If I said to you the Christian life should be full of truth, righteousness, scripture, faith, gospel, salvation, prayer, Holy Spirit, would you say, wow, Travis, that is profound. I would have never thought those things should be part of the Christian life. Or would you say, ordinary? I think you would, wouldn't you? Not one of those things is mystical. Not one of those things is magical. Not one of those things would impress somebody if you wrote it in a novel. But the way Christians do spiritual warfare is through ordinary means of grace, through ordinary spiritual disciplines, through ordinary Christian practices, ordinary godliness, ordinary alert standing firm. That's how we stand against the devil. So cling to your faith. Cling to the word. Remember the gospel. Don't lose it. Remember the suffering of Jesus. But remember that in his suffering, what did he do? He proclaimed after his resurrection his victory over every spiritual force. See that weird passage in chapter 3. Remember and stay strong. Resist the devil with firm faith. And how do you do it? Also, stand firm by remembering that you're not alone. You are not the only Christian to suffer. The kinds of persecution that the churches in Asia Minor were facing were the kinds of persecutions that the church in Rome was about to face, and they are the kinds of persecutions and and, and, and evils and difficulties and threats that you and I are about to face. 
Because friends, Christianity is hard. Life in a fallen world is hard. But God is good. God is faithful. God has helped other people endure trials just like ours. And that reminds us that God will help you and me to endure too. Fourth point. Fourth point. Hope in eternity. Hope in eternity. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So here, these really are the final words of encouragement and they're sort of a little closing praise at the end of the letter. And these are exactly what this letter has been all about from the very, very beginning. You and I face hardships. How many times do we see that in 1 Peter? A lot, right? Does, has God ever hidden from us that we will face hardships if we follow him? No. But when we have faced that suffering, we have hope. We have very real, very lasting, forever hope. Look at the beautiful phrases in this verse. It's so helpful. First, what does Peter call our Lord? He is the God of all grace. God gives us grace. That's good news. God gives us good. God gives us favor that we don't deserve. God gives us a promise of hope in Christ that he is never, never going to take away from us if we belong to Jesus. In, first, or in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul calls God something, a similar sounding phrase. He calls him the God of all comfort. God is the source of all good things that are ours. Every good thing you have comes to you from the Lord, and everything that's ever been set before you that is good comes from the Lord. And God has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. If you know Jesus, listen to this, you are destined to experience God's eternal glory. There's no higher joy, there's no greater purpose for any human being than to enjoy and to experience and to praise the glory of God. That is the top thing a human being could ever experience. And God made us for that reason. God made us for himself. God made us so that his glory would be our greatest good. And then what a comfort for us to know that that glory, that is our reward. That is our destination. That's the house we're going to. We might have it hard in this life. But the soul-thrilling glory of God is what we get in the next life. God will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Christian, God is going to take action for you himself on his very own. The king of kings, the creator of the universe is taking notice of you and he's not doing this part through an emissary. He's doing it with his own hands. What's he going to do? He's going to take care of all Christians. That word, those words, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish, they all mean the same thing. They're all telling the same story. Because the world thinks, the world thinks they can shake us, and the world thinks they can destroy us, and they think they can get us to give up. 
But you know what, the, what actually all they can do is? Kill us. So what? Kill me and you open a doorway, a gateway to the glory my heart seeks. Have at it. But in the eternal kingdom of God, the Lord is going to make us firmly established, immovable, forever solid, wholly, perfectly satisfied in Him. Yeah, we might fear that things could fall apart for us in this life. We're headed somewhere where God is going to make sure that we have the solid, perfect future awaiting us that could never be taken away. And then that little closing doxology line here, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God has the dominion. God has the authority. God will reign. God is king forever and ever. No Roman army can drive God off his throne. No president, no terrorist can stop the Lord from being the Lord over the entire universe. And he is going to rule the universe forever. Amen. Yes, let it be. That's God's word. You know what we're supposed to do with this? Hope in eternity. That's what we've seen in this book time and time and time and time and time again. Every chapter, it feels like Peter pointed us to the fact that Jesus is coming back, that there's a hope awaiting for us that can never be taken away, that Jesus is going to reign. He's going to make everything right, even though we've tried to make it all wrong. He reminds us that our hope has not ever been in an easy life in the here and now, he reminds us that a heart set on eternity will face pain today for glory tomorrow. So Christian, it's your job and it's my job to remember the promises of God and the sure thing that is heaven. That'll keep you looking the right direction. No matter how much this world tries to shake you, you hope in eternity. Fifth point, last point. Love God's word and love God's church. Love God's word and love God's church. Look at the last verses of this beautiful little book. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the, God, the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is a Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Here's the very close. This is the end. And Peter points to Silvanus. That is probably Silas. Now you think Silas, you usually think of him with Paul, right? Paul and Silas in, in Philippi singing in jail in the middle of the night, right? Same guy. Well, now he's the guy Peter is car has carrying this letter from him to the churches. And, and Silvanus may have actually helped Peter write it. He might have been the writing secretary, but we're not sure about that. And Peter says, regarding this letter, I have written to you briefly the things that are the true grace of God. What does Peter mean? Peter means that what he's written is true. 
He means that what he's written is scripture. What he's written is word of God. And he means that he has especially written to remind the churches of the genuine gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only source we have for the grace of God. And all through this letter, guys, Peter has been pointing the church time and time again to the glory of the gospel. I mean, it's just what's there. And we will be wise today, as we do every Sunday, to remember that gospel. Especially if you don't know the Lord, you need to hear this. But even if you do know the Lord, please don't ever let yourself tire of being reminded of the glories of the gospel. So what is the gospel? God is and God is holy. Amen? God is perfect and he's righteous in every way. And God is faithful. And God is just. And God will always rightly judge sin. Mankind, however, you and me, we are rebels. We are all sinners, every last one of us. We have been guilty ever since Adam sinned against the Lord in the Garden of Eden. We have been tainted with sin. We've been bent toward rebelling against God. And if God leaves us to ourselves, we will always actively choose to hate him and we will have no hope and we will have hell in front of us. His eternal wrath, rightly so, because all of us have gone against the infinitely holy God. That's true. But God, out of his love, for his own glory, sent his son to rescue his people. Jesus Christ lived a life of utter perfection. Jesus died a sacrificial death, paying the perfect penalty for every sin God is ever going to forgive. Jesus rose from the grave, conquering death and proving his identity as the perfect son of God. And Jesus is one day going to return to earth to judge the wicked and to reward all of the forgiven. That is the gospel, and that flows through the book of 1 Peter. And Peter tells you, and he tells me, stand firm in it. So here's the question. How do I stand firm in the gospel? Well, first, you stand firm in the gospel by coming to Jesus for salvation. Hear the command of God. Repent and believe. Let go of thinking you get to be your own master. You're not a good master. Yield to Jesus and let him be your Lord. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Believe Jesus is your only hope because he is. Believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and has seated Jesus on the throne over the universe. Believe, turn from your sin, ask Jesus, and you will be saved. But how else do you stand firm? If you do believe, hold fast. Remember the promise of heaven. Rejoice in the forgiveness that you've been granted. Be humble. Accept worldly suffering with eyes set on the return of the Savior. Remember the victory of Jesus over all spiritual forces. Love the gospel. Let it fill you with life and courage to live faithful and not weak in a dangerous, scary world. That's love the gospel, love the word, right? You've got to love God's word to get this. But then Peter sends greetings to the churches in Asia Minor from she who's a Babylon. What's Babylon? Here it's referring to the city of Rome. 
See, in the Old Testament, Babylon was the oppressive, strong empire. Well, here, Rome is the oppressive empire, when Peter writes. There's no Babylon really existing at this time. But if Peter calls the city he's writing from Babylon, it's going to prevent the non-Christian leaders who might get hold of this letter. They're not going to know that this was written by somebody sitting in the capital city. Peter's telling the people in Asia Minor, I mean, if you want to translate this modern, hey, all of us over here in Rome say, hey. That's pretty much what he just said. So too does Mark. Mark says, hey, too. Who's Mark? That's John Mark. He, we see him in the book of Acts. He wrote the second gospel. You remember Matthew, Mark, Luke, John? Is that Mark? Mark hangs with Peter. Mark probably got the stories that he wrote in the gospel mainly from Peter. Mark was a young man who one day abandoned a mission trip. He left Paul and Barnabas so he could go home and hang out with his mommy. Well, now Mark, as a grown man, has walked with Peter into the lion's den, into the city of Rome, facing great danger so he could be faithful to the Lord. Mark's okay. And Peter tells these folks, greet one another with the kiss of love. That, that was a common cultural thing. You guys have seen cultures, right, where they kiss each other when they greet each other, that whole like cheek-to-cheek -cheek kind of thing? That, that never caught on in the U.S., and I'm cool with that. <laughs> But it, it's kind of like this writing there, greet one another with a kiss of love. It's almost like you telling me, hey, hey, you know, hug your wife for me, okay? You know, some people say stuff like that. That's what Peter's saying. Like, you know, guys, keep showing the love of gospel. Man, shake them by the hand for me. Give them a hug for me. Now, stop for a second. When you hear this stuff, how many of you, admit it, be, be honest, how many of you are like, well, this is the extras. This is the closing credits. But you know what? It's not. God inspired this to stay in the Word of God on purpose. Why? Because it's not just the gospel that He wants you to love. It's not just scripture He wants you to love, as the first half of the point said. God wants you to love and cling to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your life is hard, right? Two of you have a hard life. I'm glad the rest of you have it easy. What do we do? We love each other. We encourage each other. We depend on each other. That's what the church is about. Listen to me, friends. You need the church. You cannot live out biblical Christianity without the church. You need people to lead and encourage you. You need people for you to lead and encourage. God has built us together as a temple of living stones to his glory, Peter said in chapter 2. And even right here, even at the close of the letter, even with the tell everybody I said hi and give each other a kiss for me, Peter is saying, love the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So never, friends, stop loving the church. Peter closes with the line at the end, peace to all of you who are in Christ. May we have that peace. Be humble. Rest in the care of Jesus Christ. Resist the devil with firm faith. Hope in eternity. Love God's word and love God's church. And in these, 
which are the message of 1 Peter, we will find a peace and a hope and the courage and the truth that keeps us strong even in the face of suffering. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord God, thank you for this book. Thank you for these truths. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the church. Lord God, help us, please, be people who are faithful to you, faithful to your commands, faithful to honor you, faithful to set our hearts on eternity and not on this life. Let us resist the devil firm in faith, loving you, treasuring the gospel. God, you've got to do this in us. If you don't, we crumble. Keep us strong. Help us love you. Help us honor you. We pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.